play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, the last meal of filmmaker Guillermo del Toro. His latest film, The Shape of Water, has been nominated for seven Golden Globes, which is more Golden Globes than any other film has received, uh, including Best Movie Screenplay, Best Original Score, Best Supporting Actor and Actress, Best Movie Actress, and Best Director. That's Guillermo del Toro. He's the director. He is one of my... I'm very excited about this because he's one of my favorite directors of all time. What is your favorite Guillermo del Toro film? I really like Pacific Rim. I haven't seen it. But Pan's Labyrinth... It's it's monsters fighting aliens, but uh, uh, Pan's Labyrinth is, is amazing. Yeah, so he's done Pan's Labyrinth. He's done all the Hellboys. He basically makes a lot of movies that I mostly don't see. I have seen Pan's Labyrinth, but I'm not generally like a horror and monster movie person. So I'm excited that this is your guy this that is we're my featuring. Guy. And after Guillermo and I talk about his lifetime obsession with monsters and creatures... We're going to go to Austin, Texas, to learn about the history of mole from Mexican-born chef Ileana de la Vega. And when I was researching for this episode, I watched some videos of people touring Guillermo del Toro's home. And during one of these tours, he said the scariest thing in his house is in his refrigerator. So I took this very literally because here at the Cairo Radio Studios where we produce this show, we have a very, very scary refrigerator. So I invited a King County health inspector to come by and evaluate the sticky, goopy, mold-filled receptacle most commonly referred to as the shared radio station refrigerator. And we're adding a new segment to the show that you get to create yourself. I want to know what your last meal is. I really, 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 really do. So please get out your phone, record a quick little message saying your name, where you live, and what your last meal would be, and we will play it at the end of an episode, just like we're going to do today for the very first time. But first, Guillermo del Toro. So his new film, The Shape of Water, is a fantastical love story about a mute cleaning lady who works in a government lab and a highly classified sea creature who's being held captive there. Where did your love of monsters and creatures come from? I'm not exaggerating. It started in the crib. I was a, a, a barely a baby, you know, and, and I was already watching TV shows back in 1964. 1965. I was watching The Twilight Zone, uh, One Step Beyond, uh, Outer Limits, you know, and and partially they scared me, but partially I was so thrilled to see these creatures that were more fascinating than anything in the real world. And I became addicted to it, you know, but beyond that I started seeing them as personifications of things that are important in our lives, you know. I felt always a bit like an outcast. I felt they they were patron saints of imperfection and sort of gave us permission, or me at least, to understand that I was imperfect and that was part of who I was. And they gave me great license for that. Was there a particular character that spoke to you the strongest? You know, the two that spoke to me the strongest were 
the creature of Frankenstein, which always seemed a little lost, a little too pure for this world, you know, didn't know how the world worked. And the other one was the Gilman, uh, the amphibian creature in the Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is a huge influence on the movie The Shape of Water, which is uh, my latest movie. Have you been kind of waiting to have some amphibious character in a movie? I can tell you without any fear of exaggeration, that is the character that I've been most looking forward to to doing. You know, I did it twice in a different way uh, with a very different character in Hellboy 1 and Hellboy 2. But in this instance, the, the beauty is that we took, we could take, uh, we did take three years to design and execute this uh, very, very complex uh, character on screen with a real suit, makeup effects, is not a, a CG creature, you know? I don't know if this is kind of spoiler alert. I hope it isn't. But uh, since audiences need to get on board with a sea monster <clears throat> making love to a human lady, there were a few body parts that Guillermo focused on in the three years when he was creating the sea creature. So the first was the lips because they had to be kissable, kissable by a human. And then I just read an article where he said that the sea creature's butt was very, very important. <laughs> he wasn't satisfied with the design until his wife and his two daughters signed off on the creature's perfect tushy. Guillermo del Toro lives and breathes horror. He has two adjoining suburban houses in Southern California that he named Bleak House. And they are absolutely packed with horror, sci-fi, and comic book paraphernalia and monsters. When you walk into his front door, you are greeted by a giant Frankenstein head. He has life-size human-looking mannequins of H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe. And then in an interview that I saw with someone from Conan, he tells this amazing story. He has a life-size Linda Blair on his couch, and he also has a Roomba. And he said that his Roomba was cleaning the carpet when it accidentally hit a security alarm. And uh, the security guards came to the house and saw Linda Blair through the window laying on the couch. And Guillermo del Toro had to talk them down that it was not a body. An actual person. It wasn't an actual person. It was person. not a possessed little girl from the Exorcist movie. Exactly, that it was made out of some kind of plastic. The main thing was, can I create my own public library uh, about the things I love? And so it's 11,000 square feet. The houses are divided into 13 libraries. You know, there's a library for science fiction and horror, of course, but there's also a natural history library, a history library, an art library. The houses have secret passages. Has They have a room that is called the rain room where it rains 24-7. It's a theatrical window with rain in the outside and a thunderstorm and so forth. And they are the houses that I imagined as a kid that I would own one day. Is there anything that actually scares you? Politicians. <laughs> Very much. So what would horror-obsessed Guillermo del Toro's last meal be? It would be a very long meal, because uh, if I'm to eat the things that I like the most, I mean, I, I, I love mole, which is a Mexican dish that is a bittersweet sauce made of chocolate, uh, many nuts, spices. You know, it's, a, it's an incredibly complex sauce that goes very well with uh, chicken or pig or beef, and uh, I would have that with beautiful refried beans, 
not not fat free at all, you know. And uh, probably, you know, we have a fruit in Mexico. You guys um, in America, you call lime, uh, what we call lemon in Mexico. And uh, there's another fruit that is more much sweeter, but it's a citric called lime in Mexico, lima. I would have a tall glass of that juice, and then for dessert, I would have a homemade flan. Was this something that was a typical meal that you would have in Guadalajara where you grew up? Yes, yes. It would be accompanied also very often by what uh, Mexican rice, which is uh, this uh, tomato sauce-based uh, fried rice that that is the perfect accompaniment with uh, uh, about a pound or two of tortillas, <laughs> handmade. There are so many variations of mole. Is there a particular style that is uh, famous in Guadalajara, and is that the one that you crave? Well, the one I crave is is the traditional uh, Puebla, Poblano, mole Poblano, which comes from the city of Puebla, uh, near Mexico City. You know, it's not traditional in Jalisco, where I'm from. But, there, you know, as you say, there are variations that are made with different nuts. Uh, there, some of them are done with pumpkin seed. Uh, they are uh, green. There's green mole, white mole, black mole. There's, I, I don't know, about 30, 40 varieties of mole in Mexico. The one I'm talking about is black mole from Puebla. Where do you eat your perfect mole? The perfect mole must be in, in Mexico, in, in Mexico City or in Puebla. If you want Oaxaca, for example, uh, has one of the best, very peculiar black moles in, in Mexico, and that is, uh, you can find it in by accident in almost any little restaurant down there. And so it sounds like from the work that you do, you put so much time, I mean, you'll spend years on films and creating creatures. Mole is something that takes a really long time. Have you ever attempted to make the dish yourself? No, no, I've seen it done from scratch uh, at home but I've never attempted to do it myself. It takes a long, long time because you have to grind about five five varieties of uh, dry peppers, and then you have to mix about 10 to 15 spices and grind the chocolate from tablet form. And it's uh, very elaborate, very delicate. You know, people either do great mole or they do terrible mole, never just okay mole. Mole, 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 I'm not saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not. <laughs> I just have the urge to to yell mole mole mole. mole, mole, mole. No, I'm just I'm not going to do it though. I'm not. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. When we come back, we will explore exactly what goes into mole poblano and learn the history of the savory sauce. And I'll give you a hint to its origin. Its founders were in the habit of eating it often. You think about that. We'll be right back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, 
or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Filmmaker Guillermo del Toro was born and raised in Guadalajara, Mexico where he started making films with his dad's Super 8 camera when he was just eight years old. But in 1997, his dad was kidnapped in Guadalajara, and after the family was forced to pay double the original ransom requested for his release, they decided to get out of Mexico. Guillermo, his parents, his siblings, they all moved to the States, saying they no longer felt safe in their home country. Are there foods that you really miss from your childhood that, that you can't get in the States? Well, there's meals that uh, my grandmother used to cook for me that, uh, you know, like everybody's history, the best meals are always the ones that your mother or your grandmother cooked for you, and no one ever comes close, you know? They become soul food, and uh, and they really become a memory. So those those I miss because the person that cooked those meals uh, was very close to me and, and is no longer here. If you were sick, what is like a classic dish that you would be fed when you were sick? It would be the international language of chicken soup. You know, the, the Mexican variation has a lot more vegetables and has rice, and very often we put an egg in it. But that was the, the, the typical, the healing food like everywhere in the world, it was a chicken soup. When he's sick, Guillermo wants chicken soup. But a last meal calls for mole poblano. So I reached out to award-winning chef Ileana de la Vega, owner of Naranjo in Austin, Texas. She has been studying Mexican cuisine for more than three decades, and she served as the Mexican Latin cuisine specialist for the Culinary Institute of America. So the first question is, what goes into a mole poblano? There are like four or five different types of dry chiles, it has chocolate, it has um, sesame seeds, it has canela mexicana or cinnamon, it has cloves, some black pepper, it has bread, it has tortillas, it has lard, tomatoes, tomatillos, onion, garlic, uh, peanuts, almonds. Chef de la Vega then walks me through the process of how to spin all of these ingredients into a finished mole. You take some lard and you start frying the ingredients, so the different types of chiles, and you fry them a little bit to get you know a little bit more flavor. Um, separately, and that is, you know, the labor-intensive part is each ingredient goes individually and it gets to be fried in lard. So cinnamon, tomatoes, tomatillos, onion, garlic, tortillas, bread, plantains, black pepper, cloves, uh, oregano, all the ingredients that it has, they will separately be uh, processed through passing them through the, you know, the, the hot uh, lard. And then you grind all the ingredients together. And uh, traditionally, the grinding process, it is made with a metate, the volcanic stone. So you kneel down on the floor, put the chiles in, and you start grinding until you have a very smooth paste. 
uh, you start frying again that paste first of the chiles, and then you keep grinding the rest of the ingredients, same way, you know, in the metate or in a blender, if you will now, uh, to a very, very smooth sauce, and then you incorporate it into the chiles and let it cook for several hours. Use, uh, you know, let it reduce. Once it reduces, you add some of the broth that you have from the turkey, and you keep cooking and cooking until it's completely cooked, the mole. So that will take, you know, several hours, obviously. Um, one is done, then you season it with a chocolate, sugar, salt. So that mole always has um, toasted sesame seeds on top as a part of the decoration of the garnish. Nowadays, most of the people will eat it with a rice, white rice or red rice. But traditionally, also, you have two types of uh, tamales that is served with. And those tamales is one is, you know, just a, you know, masa, uh, salt, lard, and chicken broth or turkey broth in it. And then you steam them in a totomosle or the corn husk. And that is one. And the other one will have beans inside. But again, very, very simple ones, little tamales that you will serve with the, with the mole. No, or tortillas. You can also, you know, if you serve it with rice, you will serve it with tortillas. If you serve it with tamales, it will be just tamales and the mole. When I see mole on restaurant menus, I feel like it's always with chicken or pork or it's on top of tamales. But Chef de la Vega says mole poblano was traditionally served with turkey. It comes from the city of Puebla, which is in the state of Puebla, in east central Mexico, southeast of Mexico City. And it is such a long list of seemingly random ingredients. There's chocolate in tortillas and plantains. So I was wondering how all these ingredients made their way into one pot. So many of Guillermo del Toro's films are fairy tale based and have these kind of mystical, magical components to them. So I love that the first thing that Chef de la Vega tells me is basically a fairy tale of where mole came from. The cute story, if you will, Sor Andrea de la Asuncion, this cloister nun, uh, who was in charge of the kitchen of the, uh, the convent of Santa Rosa in Puebla. And uh, she was asked to do um, some dish for, you know, for the viceroy that was arriving to, you know, to Puebla. And she was cooking something with turkey, and she was very happy doing so. And all of a sudden, there was a holy wind in the kitchen that threw a lot of spices and chocolate and chiles into the pot. Um, it was too late to try to change it, so she served it, and everybody obviously loved it. And as uh, the holy mole since then, right? So it's a celestial inspiration on the mole. Kind of a folklore story. Yeah, <laughs> it's a cute story. Yeah. I think. So since it was created by nuns, I thought, oh, maybe this is where the expression holy moly comes from. <laughs> so I looked it up. And it does not. Shocking. <laughs> it does not. But holy moly was an expression that came about in the 1890s. And it comes from Holy Mary. And I didn't know this, but Molly is a nickname for Mary. So first it was holy Molly. And then someone was like, let's make it rhyme. And then it became holy moly. I also spent a fair amount of time trying to find a mole expert for this episode. And let me tell you, if you just Google mole experts, you're going to get a lot of referrals to dermatologists <laughs> <laughs> helping you to remove moles from your body. And surprisingly, no experts on how to remove moles from your yard. <laughs> I love it. So you have to be very specific. But back to mole, the food, it did historically come from the kitchens of nuns who were living in the convents of Puebla. That part is not a fairy tale. And ultimately, it was a fusion food. These nuns were well-to-do Spaniards who landed in Mexico after colonial times. So they used some Spanish ingredients 
and some ingredients indigenous to that part of Mexico. But they ended up in the convent with uh, money, even slaves or servants. They were like, you know, like uh, indigenous people. So they learn from them of, of those ingredients. And then they have their own things uh, from Spain, ingredients that they could afford, let's say almonds or, you know, more, more expensive ingredients. So it was a combination, you know, like in, in Spain, you get a lot of sauces that they are thickened with bread, walnuts or almonds or such as things. So it's just, you know, like the perfect combination, you know, of the two worlds. Making mole at home is a project. It is definitely for serious cooks since it's so laborious and time consuming. Aaron, you were actually there. Remember last year I sent out an email to a bunch of friends and I was like, let's have a mole cook off. Uh-huh. And everybody but one person was like, I don't want to. Like <laughs> it's it was, a lot of work. It was too much to ask. Apparently, my friends don't have the stamina to create good mole. If it's a wedding, or if it's something like a you know like celebration, so it's a mole for celebrate. It's not like your everyday meal that you wake up in the morning and think, oh, I would like to have for lunch um, some mole poblano, and that will happen. So it's a very specific dish that you have to be prepared with all the ingredients and the time to prepare it and. Uh, And, you know, really a lot of time for it. Now I'm thinking that that would be exciting to do for Thanksgiving because I think turkey is so boring. And if you did a turkey mole, that would be so much more delicious. I know a lot of uh, people in the United States that do that. You know, like not necessarily has to be the mole poblano, but sometimes they use any other mole and uh, serve it with turkey during Thanksgiving. I think there are certain foods that people question if they should make at home. For example, I've been wanting to make homemade ramen for years But that takes two days to make a broth. You have to make alkaline noodles. You have to do the, you know, onsen eggs. You have to make the chashu pork. I mean, there's like a million components. Or you can just go to a ramen restaurant and for under 15 bucks, get it served to you in 15 minutes. So it's always kind of hard to decide, like, is it worth the effort? Do you love cooking enough to have the satisfaction of making a dish that's going to take you two or three days or just leave it to the experts? What is the most complicated thing that you have attempted? I've done some like low and slow barbecue that takes, you know, like 12 to 16 hours and you have to get up super early. There you go. Prime everything and stuff's been a Thanksgiving turkey that I brine for a couple days and you make the brine ahead of time and then I do a whole bunch of stuff to the turkey. That's a pretty involved recipe. Yeah, I don't want to know all the things you do to that turkey. (laughs) I kiss it. Ooh. Guillermo del Toro lives in a house of horrors. But in one interview, I heard him say that the scariest thing in his house is in the refrigerator. Now, he was joking, but here at the Cairo Radio Studios, where this podcast is produced, our refrigerator is no joke. It is truly disgusting. It is truly a horror. And I decided to bring by a King County health inspector to evaluate it, to look at our fridge as if it was a restaurant fridge. I wanted to know if he was going to shut our restaurant down. When we come back, you'll hear that story. And also, we're going to hear from you. We'll be right back. If you like listening to your last meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite. 
just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. I was watching a video of Guillermo del Toro giving someone a tour of his house of horrors that he calls Bleak House. And when they were in the kitchen, Guillermo joked that the biggest horror in the entire house was in the refrigerator. And this got me thinking about the refrigerator that I use every day at work. Besides doing this podcast, I am a feature reporter and I host a live segment on Cairo Radio in Seattle. So I put together a feature about our office fridge. Our work fridge is gross. If you work in an office, you may have a similar situation. One fridge, 30 to 40 people using it, every last square inch packed with bags and plastic containers and pizza-shaped bulges of tinfoil, mysterious liquids pooling on the refrigerator floor, containers on the verge of blowing their lids bloated with the gases of decaying fruit. Sorry, I was a creative writing minor in college. And at our office, no one is in charge of cleaning the fridge. So no one ever does, except me. I actually take a strange pleasure in cleaning out the office fridge. So as the official keeper of the fridge, I took the liberty of inviting a King County health inspector to come and take a look. To evaluate our fridge just like he would during an official restaurant inspection. To see if our little restaurant should be shut down. All right, let's see what we have in here. That's health and environmental investigator Mike Simpson. When you open up this fridge, what are your big concerns here? My concerns are on the bottom here, just on the the bottom floor, there's a lot of stickiness and things that have spilled. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of food residue down here inside some of the drawers and underneath them. I see, like right here, I see a plastic bag that is full of rotten cucumbers with juice and mold. Wow, that, hey, and it's not even closed. Let me close that for you. What's this? Ew. It looks like it used to be corn. No. What do you think that is? Or was? I think I think it was quinoa. No. I No, chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I think quinoa, it's breaded chicken. chicken. Corn. <laughs> corn. It's mold now. Yeah, yeah. So. But even after the corn quinoa chicken encounter, Mike surprised me by saying, "You know, this is not nearly as bad as what I'd uh, been suspecting or fearing. Oh. Um, it looks much like many workplace fridges, the places that I've worked in the past. Um, let's dig in a little bit and sort of see what we have here. Okay. Here is a container that has two plums and a peach that is breaking wow. down rapidly, very moldy. I'm not sure you can call that a peach anymore. <laughs> but the good news is... Things that are moldy, like this former peach, um, probably should be tossed. There. Uh, just because it's food is moldy doesn't mean it's necessarily going to make you sick. It could, uh, but you're much more likely to get sick from food that has been left out of the refrigeration for too long. Things that aren't cooked all the way, like mostly raw meats. Mike says the biggest concern is what happens before the food gets to the office. Someone not washing their hands when preparing the food. He says the number one way to prevent foodborne illness is by washing your hands and keeping foods cold. So one thing I thought I would do is check the temperature of your fridge to see if it's, you know, holding food at the proper temperature. If this was a restaurant, we'd actually be testing the temperature of the food. Okay, here we go. Here's a reduced fat milk or used by November 27th. It's fairly liquid. Doesn't appear to be completely coagulated in one big chunk of milk, but uh, so we'll get a good temperature on here. Thermocouple, or fancy word for thermometer, um, says it's 
36 and a half to 37 degrees. So you're holding a good temperature in here. So the foods that are in here should be just fine, as long as they're not stored in there for two, three weeks. And what about all the sticky goop on the refrigerator floor? Um, you do want to keep it cleaned every once in a while. It's more gross than it is likely to make you sick, which is a good news. He says packing a fridge too tightly also isn't good. It could burn the fridge out prematurely. But it doesn't actually violate any laws. Mike is concerned with how much food is being left behind to rot. Some statistics from a study on food waste said that 25% of all food that people buy gets tossed, which is a lot. Why waste that food, especially delicious food? You brought it for a reason. Eat your lunch. What grade would you give our fridge if A is perfect and F is this whole thing has to go to the dump right now? It's messy, but if we're using the same you know, scale of risk violations that we do when we're looking at restaurants, there's really very little items in there that are likely to make you sick beyond serving people moldy food. So we'll give it a B. Definitely needs some work and cleaning. Um, it looks like you know, with a little more regular upkeep, you'll, you'll get an A next time. You can do it. We believe in you. So there you have it. Mike Simpson has ruled. The disgusting office fridge is apparently not so disgusting, at least from a health standpoint. Your eyes and nose might tell you differently. (laughs) And now I'm excited to introduce a new feature on Your Last Meal featuring... You! Ever since I started the podcast, every time I go to a party and they ask what I do and I tell them about the podcast, people are super eager to share what they would have for their last meal. So I wanted to give you a chance to share yours. Hi, this is Jason in Burien, Washington, and my last meal would be two double-doubles from In-N-Out Burger, lettuce and cheese only, and a French fry. That simple. Hi, this is Denise from Tacoma. My last meal would be a classic surf and turf dinner with a large baked potato with all the fixings and for dessert, a big slice of decadent chocolate cake. Hello, Rachel Bell. My name is Warren Langford. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my last meal would be breakfast burritos. A zillion bajillion breakfast burritos. Bye. And that was Guillermo del Toro's last meal. Check out his new film, The Shape of Water, starring Sally Hawkins and Octavia Spencer. Thanks to Chef Ileana de la Vega, owner of the restaurant Naranjo in Austin, Texas. It was named the best Mexican restaurant in the city. Oh, and she also leads culinary tours in Mexico, which sounds super fun. Find that information at elnaranjorestaurant.com. Thanks to King County Health Inspector Mike Simpson for saying our disgusting fridge is actually okay. Therefore, reinforcing the terrible habits of my disgusting coworkers. This episode was produced by Aaron Mason and me, and our theme music is by Prom Queen. Oh, and why don't you leave us a review on iTunes? It helps the show stay afloat. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal.